This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. My guest today is retired Navy Captain David Marquet. David was the captain of the USS Santa Fe, a nuclear fast attack Los Angeles class submarine, which he commanded starting in 1998. He outlines his time aboard that boat in the book Turn the Ship Around, one of two books written by David, the other being Leadership is Language. David and I have a fascinating conversation about leadership, about his time aboard the Santa Fe, about some of the things that he learned there in transforming that ship from one of the worst in the Navy in terms of readiness and retention into one of the best in the Navy in both of those categories. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I know that I did. Now, without further ado, on to David Marquet. All right, so today on the podcast, I have with me David Marquet. He is a former Navy submarine captain of the USS Santa Fe, which we'll get into here shortly. But uh, David, if you wouldn't mind, uh, maybe a little introduction of yourself. Uh, yeah, you said it. I was a submarine commander. <laughs> um, yeah, my story is basically uh, I learned about leadership after I thought I knew everything about leadership. And I had an interesting experience where I went to the submarine that I wasn't ended up commanding the submarine at the very last minute that I wasn't trained for and I'd never been on. And it stretched my thinking on leadership in, in new ways, which became very, very powerful. And it centers on the key word of intent. So you typically, you want distributed decision-making, you want engagement, you want ownership, but you also want a unity of effort. And the magic to getting both of those things is the word intent. No, and that's great. And you're also the author of two books. Uh, the book in question that that we'll talk about today is Turn the Ship Around, which was your first book. And you also have a recent book that came out that in 2020, if uh, if my research is strong here, um, called Leadership is Language. So yeah. uh, Turn the Ship Around is obviously about your time on the USS Santa Fe. And you mentioned briefly that you had taken the assignment to the Santa Fe um, after preparing for the assignment at a different submarine, the Olympia, correct? Yeah. And the circumstances that brought you to the Santa Fe, you lay out in the book, so we don't need to cover them here. But I think my listeners would be curious to know a little bit about submarine leadership. I think they've seen movies like The Hunt for Red October and yeah. Das Boot and all of those, all of those normal ones and, and, and those types of movies. But is... Is there anything specific to or special about submarine leadership that makes it different from either a surface vessel or, say, a ground commander that, that people may be a little more familiar with? I think fundamentally it's the same. You're dealing with people. I think submarining is different in some nuanced ways. It's very technical, and there's the legacy of Admiral Rickover and his emphasis on technical expertise. And uh, I have to tell you that... I love being a student, so I, I really enjoyed the technical part and learning all the set points and drawing all the systems and that kind of thing. I didn't understand the connection between being knowing things technically and the ability to 
distribute decision making. You can't distribute decision making if people don't have a deep integral technical knowledge. And I think Rickover knew this, but he really didn't worry so much about the empowerment piece, if you want. It was it's still a very much of a top-down, the captain needs to know the answer. I mean, it's, someone needs to know the answer, so I guess it might as well be the, the captain. But it, it gets a, just because you have the answer doesn't mean you need to give the team the solution. This was this was a, kind of an eye-opener to me to, to think about it this way. If you don't know the answer, it's pretty easy to say, oh, hey, well, like, let's work on this together and admit you don't know, even if you're the commander. Um, but as hard as that is, it's much harder when you think you know the answer. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, it's, it's interesting you say that, because as, as we were talking about earlier, I was thumbing through, looking through some of the other quotes, because I pulled a number of them from the book. I read it yeah. back in 2000, probably 14 or so, and it was recommended to me by my first civilian boss at the time. And he read it. He, he was an Air Force lieutenant himself for a brief period of time. And he had come across the book. He was now the CEO of the, the company that I worked for at the time. And he recommended it and said, hey, while we don't have the same circumstances that, that David does here, uh, there's a lot of really good lessons in here. And I think you will appreciate it. And he was right. And one of the things that as I was thumbing through the, the notes, um, you, you make the, the statement um, to resist the urge to provide solutions which I think is exactly what you're talking about there. Everybody's yeah. technically sound or should be. Um, yeah. And you as the captain should be more so than most. Um, so how, I guess, is when you're dealing with technical professionals like that, as a technical professional yourself, I'd imagine it's very hard sometimes to step back and and create that distance to allow that creative genius to come out in your in your subordinates, correct? Yeah, I mean, so the question is, what do you want? Do you, do you want to solve the problem or do you want to build a team that can solve problems? And we, when we start in our careers, we always get paid for solving the problem. And then we get good at solving the problem. And on the strength of our problem-solving ability and good decision-making ability, we get promoted. Now we're in charge of a team. And now we have 10 people and 100 people. And we're, I'm still like focused on optimizing my brain for solving the problem. But this comes at the cost of sub-optimizing 99 other brains. And obviously, if you can make them 2% smarter, they're going to overwhelm you. Doesn't, you, know, you you're going to be playing at 98, 99%, whatever. It doesn't make a difference. It's going to quickly be overwhelmed if you can get the team to start doing some thinking. I think... Think like thinking is the scarcest resource that we have. Mm. Every time I go into companies, every, every it's self-selecting. Um, companies don't hire us if they're not interested in getting their people to think. But every company that hires us says, "One, well, I, I wish my like I'd love to see more thinking. But I'd like to see the thinking come out. I know there's stuff going on behind their eyeballs, but it doesn't always come out. So we want more thinking. We don't need more compliance." In work, you need thinking and compliance. You can't have just people who just sit around and daydream. You will not build the product. So it's great that uh, the you know uh, the guys who designed Google had the idea of how to do page ranking. But if they hadn't coded it, it really wouldn't matter. So you got to so there's doing, but 
where we are in the current and the current state of the workforce is doing is overrepresented and it's mm. overrepresented in the language we if you scan for example a job descriptions which we do for some of our client companies and uh, we we make it very simple it's either a thinking verb or a doing verb so a doing verb uh, is one which tends to want to reduce variability and it has words like comply, produce, perform, achieve, perform additional tasks as assigned, horrible things like that, horrible <laughs> just I hate that. It makes me throw up every time I see it. Anyway, moving on. And then thinking, thinking is like imagine or decide. Thinking benefits from embracing variability and and there's a and you you can look at a lot of job descriptions. There are very few thinking, very very few job descriptions to describe what you need to decide, the decisions you make in that job. They describe what you need to do, and we even use the word we go to work to what blank our jobs to do our jobs. It's embedded in the language. Work is about doing. It's not about thinking. And if you see someone over there like the sitting there like the thinker in the pose of the thinker with his chin on his hand, you'd be like, what are you doing? Start doing something. You're not doing anything. Do something. But this is not what we hire people for anymore. We can hire robots for that. Yeah. And that's, and that's a great point. And I want to jump into the quote specifically that brings us together today, because I think it, it touches on some of these pieces. And then there's a specific question based on what you just said that I have. So I'm going to read the quote really quick so the listeners have it. Um, and also probably to refresh your memory, I'm sure writing hundreds of pages, uh, some things occasionally escape the old memory banks. Everything is etched in pain in my mind. <laughs> I'm sure it is. So uh, here's the quote for today. You said, first, empowerment by itself is not a complete leadership structure. Empowerment does not work without the attributes of competence and clarity. Second, empowerment still results from and is a manifestation of a top-down structure. At its core is the belief that the leader empowers the followers that the leader has the power and ability to empower the followers. We need more than that because empowerment within a leader-follower structure is a modest compensation and voice lost compared with the overwhelming signal that you are a follower. It is a confusing yeah. signal. What we need is release or emancipation. Emancipation is fundamentally different from empowerment. With emancipation, we are recognizing the inherent genius, energy, and creativity in all people and allowing those talents to emerge. We realize that we don't have the power to give these talents to others or empower them to use them, only the power to prevent them from coming out. Emancipation results when teams have given decision-making control and have the additional characteristics of competence and clarity. You know you have an emancipated team when you no longer need to empower them. Indeed, you no longer have the ability to empower them because they are not relying on you as their source of power. End quote. So... For people that have listened to this podcast for some time, they'll know that this strikes right at the core of what, what gets me up in the morning and gets me excited. Um, so you talk about competence and clarity being key pieces to uh, an emancipated leader as opposed to an empowered uh, subordinate, I guess, might be a term that, that folks would recognize. Um, you, you mentioned in your quote or when you were when you were speaking before about the fact that people don't you don't see thinking in job descriptions. I'm sure that's a byproduct of both the employer wanting to give concrete things to people that they're looking to hire. But do you think there's also a component to it where people are not used to being 
able to recognize a job that they may be well suited for as a thinker. I don't know that people necessarily classify themselves well as thinkers and what they're good at thinking about. So do you think there's also an ownership piece to the future employee? Yeah, maybe, but they're not the ones writing the job descriptions. I mean, they just get to select what's out there and the vast majority is, there may be some, but I don't, like we're working with healthcare, for example, and, uh, I was looking at supervisors. So these were nurse supervisory job descriptions. And even in the supervisory job description, it was still very much rooted in a deliver and perform language structure. And it didn't really, didn't not, not didn't really, it didn't talk about the kind of decisions that you might have to make. And may, I think people just aren't used to talk talking in that way about jobs. It's because... So it's the legacy of the Industrial Revolution. We didn't hire people to make decisions. We hired people to operate machines and that kind of thing. And and work has changed so fast that the language hasn't caught up to it. Mm, That's an interesting observation. And I think, as you said, you know, employers are not writing and thinking about thinking positions. And I know that from the perspective of a of an employee, um, a potential employee somewhere. I don't know that if asked that it would be a thing that, you know, it would be easy to quantify what it was that I'm good at thinking about. Like, how do I know which jobs to go look for? Because just because you can do doesn't necessarily mean that you are inherently thinking about it. If it's so rote and so, uh, so standardized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could just, you could go to some job site just right now and, Let's just do that for fun. Zip recruiter, senior manager, what does the senior manager do? So, I mean, the language is plan and direct a group of individuals in an organization. Role is to supervise, supervise individuals. The whole language is about controlling other people. Mm. Ensure that things are running efficiently. Well, yeah, we could be running efficiently, but not doing something that's totally relevant, like making DVDs. And each individual's performance meets company industry standards. So there's an enforcement role may Mm. include managing priorities. Now that could be decision. You could Mm -hmm. managing priorities is really decision-making. I don't know why we say manage. They should just say deciding where to allocate resources Um, that guiding direct reports, which it doesn't apparently even need definition, but direct reports. Those are the people I direct them and they report back to me. So it's, like the language is just pervasive. Sure. Uh, it, and I throw my hands in the air. And I and I can't blame you. Now, going back a little bit to your time on on submarines. Now, the the submarine the the submariner officer pipeline is a is a long one. There's a lot of education. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of systems and understanding and technical knowledge that you have to have. Um, and that obviously has to play out well on the ship for the ship to be safe and to operate across its full mission set. Um, How, when you were there, you you talked about intent and you have your intent-based leadership philosophy. How do you use intent in an arena where there's so much technical knowledge required and procedure following that has to happen? How How do you enable intent in a space like that? The way it works better, the way intent works is you go to your boss and you say, hey, this is what I intend to do. Uh, it's a little more, it's a fuller conversation. We say, 
here's what we see, here's what we think, is what we intend to do. So, hey, um, the pump's vibrating, it's making a funny noise, that's what I see. Here's what I think. I think the upper bearing's going bad early. Not the lower bearing, not the sound mount, but the, like, so you're, and you might put a percentage on that. I'm 65% sure that's the problem. Hmm. And then we might talk about, well, how do we test that? And then, so my intention is to shut down a port side of the engine room, replace the, the bearing on the pump. And then I get to ask questions. Uh, your boss gets to ask questions and your boss can veto you. But the initiative comes from you. The alternative and what we normally see is either people getting permission uh, or they're just doing stuff. Well, I, I have the authority to do that. So why do I need to talk to you? Well, would have been nice to know because the rest of us could have coordinated or it impacts different parts of the organization, but no one had a chance to do anything because you didn't say anything. It's just like we found out afterward that half the interim was shut down. Obviously, you don't want that. So, and even with permission. So, well, I would like permission to shut down the port. And then I would say, well, shut down the port side of the engine room and repair uh, upper bearing on the loop, number two lube oil pump. Well, I'm just, that's telling people what to do. I just hmm. gave an order. I told them what to do. Why? Why Why did I need to? Because they forced me to. I don't think you need to do that. It, intent, intent exposes your thinking pre-decisional. People talk about giving feedback. No one cares. Stop teaching people how to give feedback. Teach people how to invite feedback. Teach, teach people, if you can, to seek feedback, to always be saying, okay, now here's, my, here's what I'm thinking. Check this. Here's what I'm thinking. Make it better. Here's what I'm thinking. How, how, what am I missing? In other words, invite feedback before we do the thing, not, oh, I did that. Sorry. Can you give me feedback? How was it? Anyway, so I think like almost everything that we have, quote, taught in leadership development is 180 wrong, including the things I'm just talking about. Because it's designed for the wrong thing. It's designed to get people to do stuff. It's designed to, around controlling other people. And this is not, you, humans are not at their best. Like if you think about parenting, eventually, like you can do everything for your kid, and then you've created a terrible human being who is dependent on others when they go out in the world and will never get a second date because they're useless. Or you could help them, but you can't tell a two-year-old, oh, you make a decision about a seatbelt. So you got to graduate yourself into it. But by the time they're 18, they need to be making their own decisions because otherwise you've infantilized them. Now, the, the last line in the quote is one that I think is really interesting, and it's probably the one that jumps out of the page at most people, is that the when you talk about you know you have an emancipated team when you can when you no longer have the ability to empower them because they're not relying on you as the source of their power now from a from a leader's perspective or perhaps manager would be the better term here it, the idea of of a loss of power um even if even a well-intentioned leader to give up power to yield uh like that can kind of kind of ruffle feathers maybe raise raise the the hackles and kind of lead someone to believe that, well, if, if, if I'm not here to empower people, if I'm not here to do that, why am I here? Am I putting myself out of a job or am I making myself irrelevant to the, yeah. to the functioning of the organization by giving up this power? Yeah. Leadership is a journey toward irrelevance. If you don't haven't figured that out, then you're just clinging, you're just clinging to 
scraps of attention and wanting people to stand by your door and say, oh, Matt, can you please solve my problem for me and change my diaper while you're at it? Uh, you know, and it, look, yeah, that's what leadership is. That's why most people are, it's, leadership is unnatural. No one's born a leader. Everyone's, you, you, some people are born less not a leader than other, others. But the fundamental practices of leadership are inherently unnatural. Mm -hmm. You're giving up power. You're shining this flashlight away from you. You're flattening hierarchy. You're raising people around you closer to you in the hierarchy if you can, uh, rather than trying to uh, have a bigger office with um, deeper carpet and a closer parking spot and separate in an executive dining where you separate yourself from the rest of humanity. And you can make a lot of money doing that if you're right in the short term. But the organizations that have uh, been around for a long time, like you, if you compare GE to say Costco, uh, you'd, you'd be way better off if you had put your money in Costco because GE was fluff, Boom, Jack Welch, and then crashed because it was financial engineering and they started taking shortcuts on their products and everything was about being a Jack Welch clone, on and on and on. As soon as he picked his successor, everyone else who was a, a thought they were in the running bolted out of the company. What does that tell you? And then they went and ruined other companies. So... Uh, including Boeing, by the way, but that's another story. In any event, uh, le leadership isn't about you being great. It's about putting whatever genius you have into the organization and into the people and letting them be great. Sure. And, and speaking of genius, in the in the quote you mentioned, uh, recognizing the inherent genius, energy, and creativity in all people. When you talk about a an organization, say a a submarine with all of the various Submariners from year zero to year 20 or 30 of their careers, there's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of inherent genius, energy, and creativity there. How do you, as the commander or the, the leader or the boss in that situation, manage the competing geniuses and, and energies and creativities of your people without stifling that or, or allowing the loudest voice to become the genius, the energy, the creativity for the group? Yeah, well, you got to make them play nice. You got to structure you. So here's the thing: if uh, think you you need to think about decisions as a product. So if you're making refrigerators or electric cars or coding apps, whatever it is, we all start with that product, and we have a good sense of what it costs, and and we keep track of the schedule and the cost and the quality of the product and what the team's doing and that kind of thing. But we don't think about the decisions behind it as a product. If you do, you start to say, well, what did that decision cost me? Which most organizations don't really know very well. And you're going to win if you can reduce costs of decision-making, i.e. push it lower in the organization, that you'll win. Secondly, it, the genius of Deming, the, the Deming leadership revolution in quality was the old way was to make cars, don't pay too much attention to the process, but put an inspector at the end who would then make sure you had quality cars. And okay, good, good, okay, uh, defect, go back for repair. Good, good, defect, go back for repair. 
Well, apply the same thing to decision-making. So what leaders like to do is we don't really control the decision-making structure. So the decisions coming off of our decision-making assembly line are randomly chaotic. But so then we sit at the end adjudicating good, bad. No, we're going to do it this way. And I feel good about it. I think that's my job. But it's much better to uh, control the structure. So if you're in a meeting, for example, one of the principles is that we have a share of voice. You want to equalize share of voice. So if someone is, so first of all, you want to vote first, then discuss. Everyone runs meetings wrong if it's a decision meeting. They, they run in a way which allows the loudmouth to capture the meeting right at the beginning and anchor the group. Hey guys, uh, we've been working real hard to catch up with Airbus and we developed this new 737 MAX, as you know, and I think it's really ready for prime time. What do you guys all think? No idiot's going to raise their hand and say, no, no, boss, I don't think so. You know, the first thing you'll get is the first um, loyal deputy. Oh, yeah, you're right. We have the FAs all behind it. We're good to go, blah, blah, blah. And then we say, well, why didn't we hear? Oh, why didn't someone speak up? Because you didn't run the meeting in a way that showed that you were the slightest bit interested in that. If you were, you would say something more like this. Hey, before we talk about this, I want everyone, we're going to vote. Yeah, but Bob, no, quiet. How ready is this product for market? And then I get a whole bunch of people where they're voting 95, 99. You can't vote 100 or zero, by the way. And then, but I see a couple of ones. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Let's investigate them. Let's shine light on them. Let's find out what they see that we don't see, what they know that we don't know. And then let's respect that. Now, I'm not saying that, that, you, that means you torpedo going to market all the time. But you want to know about that. What happens now is people convince themselves that they know what's going on, but they don't. Because they haven't run the meeting properly. So, yeah, you you need to and, and when you structure meetings that way, you can then you don't you can remove the inspector, which is what happened with manufacturing. I don't need an inspector at the end of the line because the quality is baked into the production process Well, if the quality of decision making is baked into how the decision is made. Then I remove my need. So your job is no longer to sit at the end as a goalie and adjudicate decisions. You, your job is to structure the process by which the. Like, how many people did you talk to when you came up with this idea? Oh, just you. Everyone talk, Everyone wants to go linear, up and down, vertical. And so I, we'd actually changed some forms, right? The talk to a peer. Hmm. Which one? I don't care. Anyone. Just get, get one of your peers to sign a piece of paper that said, you talked to them about this decision. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And I think that, I mean, that will tease out that genius and energy and creativity, a sense of ownership, as it were, in in the crew or the team or the, the company, I think is a is a very powerful piece there. I, I really appreciate the, uh, the the words from the book. And, you know, one of the things that I think caps off what you said here is, is another small quote from the book. And it, you said, if everyone thinks like you, you don't need them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that summarizes it very well. And I, I, I do want to be sensitive to your time. Um, I have a, a rapid fire set of questions for you. Some related. Yeah, let's go. We'll jump right into it. Short answers, but take as long as you like. First one. What's the most recent book you read or are reading? Oh, my gosh. I got such a huge pile of books. Um, I'm reading. I'm walking away from the mic here. I'm reading uh, biographies now. I'm looking, I, my new book is on ego. So if anyone out there, anyone listening to the podcast has a, knows a story about 
someone who seems to be able to control their ego, or even better yet, had a kind of a big temper and was figured out how to control it. So I'm reading this, reading uh, Potter's biography of Admiral Nimitz, uh, who won the war in the Pacific, I think sure. largely. And uh, he was influenced early uh, from his time at the Naval Academy. There was, there was a, a scandal, essentially, where people were acting like children. And it, he, wrote, he would write in, to his wife, he would sort of vent about how messed up these different... Because he had to get all these admirals and uh, prima donnas fighting Bull Halsey and uh, MacArthur. He needed to get them all to work together, but they all had these... But, but they also needed guys with a lot of drive to go out there and take it to the enemy. So it's... Um, that's what that's the kind of thing I'm reading now. Uh, and that's good, and I appreciate Admiral Nimitz for his uh, 500 years of continued life that he granted the Marine Corps as well uh, as a as a practitioner myself. So that was a nice thing of him to do. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Number two. If you could have dinner with any person, alive or dead, who would it be? Yeah, I don't know. Probably someone really creative. Uh, maybe Bezos. No, I think that I think that would yield a very interesting dinner conversation. It would be it would be interesting to see a, a Navy captain and an author sit side by side with you know a, a tech mogul and have a have a conversation. So I will happily serve the roast beef at that dinner if, uh, yeah, if yeah, you yeah. make that happen. <laughs> the Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. Yep, that yep. guy would be good. And I speak a little Russian, so we could almost communicate. Well, he speaks pretty good English. I mean, obviously, anyone like Aristotle or Socrates, those guys would be really sure. nice to sure. talk with. Third question. If, if you could be present at any event in history as an observer, what would it be? Uh, I'd like to be present at where the decision to do something was was made. Maybe the decision to drop the atom bomb. Maybe the decision to launch the D-Day invasion. Mm. Maybe. I'm also interested about early, maybe the sack of Rome. Uh, where, like, I'm interested in, like, how did these Germanic tribes basically become civilization? As, as we, you know, what, what was going on in the Dark Ages? It's just, the whole thing is kind of, fuzzy to me so maybe some of the battles of the defense of vienna against the the turks mm -hmm. in like 13 or 1200 whatever that was sure maybe columbus is he setting off for to discover india there's so many, so many of those great events, and it's interesting to hear as I ask guests the same questions, kind of hear what their responses are, and a lot of them revolve around, you know, iconic moments in military history. I've had people say that they wanted to be on the deck when the Japanese signed the 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 armistice or the the, the ceasefire at the end of the war, um, you know, and and to see that and to be there and to hear to talk to people, observe and and say. What are you feeling right now? What is this like for you? Because I don't yeah. think we have something quite like that today. So very, very interesting answer. Yeah, I, I'd rather be at the beginning 
I, mm. I'd rather be where the decisions were made. I mean, at that point, the war was over, and this, there was no. It was, we were just signing a piece of paper. I mean, yeah, it was an iconic event. That would have been great to be at, but um, I, I would rather. Why did Hitler declare war on the United States? To me, that makes no sense. Mm. He didn't need to. And uh, I, like, I don't know if I really wanted to be in a meeting with him or to observe that. But like, how, like, what was the thought process there? Well, we can ha- we can we can manipulate the question however we want. No one has to know you're there. You can be invisible. Yeah. It's my <laughs> podcast. I make the rules. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, all right, next one. Uh, excluding your own books. This is the caveat to this question. Um, what book, article, paper, movie, or TV show would you recommend to someone to change their life? Well, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Covey is great. Mindset by Carol Dweck, where she talks at the, where you have the growth versus the fixed mindset is great. Basically, anything by Adam Grant, I really enjoy all, all of um, Matt, his stuff, Matthew Syed, who's a UK writer, has got really fun, interesting books where you turn the page and like, oh yeah, mm, yeah, oh yeah, mm, that's good. So uh, just read stuff and give yourself permission if you don't, if it doesn't grab you, including my books, put it aside and start the next one. I always thought if I turn to page one, I got to get to 285. <laughs> Life's too short for that. That's right. No, that's that's fantastic advice. We talk a lot about reading and, and, and growth and all of those things, but I, I had to break myself of the same habit. Once you start something, you have to finish it. It's not the case, especially if it's not if it's not speaking to you. It may later, but you may you may be better off to put it down and pick something else up. I I sorry, I got one other is I um I had a really uh, I had a great opportunity. I met D. Kafari, who was the first woman to sail around the world against the prevailing winds by herself solo so she spent like in six months by herself on a ship sailing pounding into the waves fixing stuff herself and her book's called against the flow and uh, it's a great story and you kind of think well the person by themselves like how much teamwork is there but there is a lot because she's Mm got to communicate with what's going on and the setup beforehand and um, she's just a really interesting person. Yeah, I'll have to take a look for that. I, I always love a good book recommendation, so I think I'll add that to the list. And if you like sailing, it's, you have to put this on your list. No, that's that's great. Two quick ones left. Uh, something you used to think one way about and have since changed your mind entirely. Well, the whole leadership thing, which I kind of, you know, the job of the leaders to make decisions, and I think that's wrong, the job of the leader is to build a team that can make decisions. Um, I guess you kind of mellow with age or something. I'm not sure. I I was pretty, like, if you talk to me about a universal basic income, when I was in my 20s, I would say, oh, that's the biggest bunch of hogwash. People won't be motivated. They'll just suck off the tea to the government and you know it'll just be the downfall of the, the next thing will be the barbarians will be overrunning Rome. but when i look about my own experience in life i was able to write the book because i had my my government retirement and it was because i didn't have to make any money for two years 
that I was able to take the time and write a book which fundamentally changed my life and the lives of many other people for the better. So, and I kind of realized that afterwards. Well, my wife and I would talk about it because she's able to, she's got good Scots blood. So to say, hey, we're going to live on my retirement. How's that sound to you? So oh, fine, I can make that happen. So tighten the screws. Any, but any event, our ability not to want to impress people with our house and our ability to live simply and focus on what was important within the within and and to have this benefit was really what allowed me to live my life in a much bigger and fuller way. And yeah, there are going to be some people you give everyone a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred. I mean, first of all, no one's getting rich off that, but probably are going to not use the money wisely. But there are going to be a lot of people who that's going to allow them to do some really interesting things. I mean, after World War II, we basically gave everyone free. We gave uh, four million servicemen free college. That didn't seem to hurt the country that much. <laughs> it's a great. That's a great perspective. And the last question is is just for fun. But if uh, if you were to try to set a world record, what world record do you think you could you could claim? Um. Well, I don't think I'm gonna. I can claim any. Uh, I, I'm not exceptional enough as an athlete to claim much. But I do love. I love stuff in nature. So trail running, these these these. Uh, long distance runs uh in uh, in up in the mountains uh long distance swimming i swam across the potomac and back this last weekend open water swimming but i mean there's there's people who do like 10 miles 20 miles and I, i'm happy if i get three four miles i mean that's a great swim for me so i'm not but i maybe like the oldest person to do a hundred mile run. Hey, there you go. Or, or the, the oldest swimmer to survive an impact with a log in the Potomac. <laughs> in the Potomac. Yeah. That's right. So I was almost the oldest swimmer in that swim, in that swim, in that swim. Almost is a good place to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I will have to wait for everyone else to age out or die or something. And then maybe there you go. Well, you know, it's, you go. it's like the, the old, how old do you think the guy, oldest person to climb Mount Everest? What do you think? Ooh, that's a good question. I thought that was I thought that was relatively recently, wasn't it? Ninety nine. Come on, not serious. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Talk about a motivated individual. Um, well, that's that's great, David. This has been a fantastic conversation. I, I thank you for your time. Uh, tell people where they can learn more about your your books uh, and and your work and, uh, and and reach out to you if they so choose. Yeah, on social media, it's L. David Marquet, L's for Lewis, and L. David Marquet. Uh, we have a YouTube channel called Leadership Nudges, so just type in Leadership Nudges on YouTube. We have like 388 at this point. Little, They're about a minute, minute and a half long, just talking about little snippets. And then our program is called Intent-Based Leadership, so you can look at Intent-Based Leadership ibli.com and tempestleadershipinternational.com or on LinkedIn. But the YouTube and LinkedIn is probably good places uh, to go because they can you can be more interactive there than on the website. And yeah, and tell us what you think. Watch a bit, watch a nudge, and let us know what you think. 
Yeah, and they're great, and I'll and I'll throw that in there. I'm glad you brought it up because I have watched a number of the leadership nudges, not all 388 yet, but um, <laughs> a number of them, and and I will put in a good word. They are fantastic, and they're short, and they, they you watch them at the beginning of your day, and they'll give you something to think about all day. So, um, again, that's high praise. Well, thank you again, David. I really appreciate your time. Matt, thanks, listeners, thanks, thanks for uh, hanging in there, and uh, I appreciate what what you do to help people have a better life at work. It's so important. such a big part of our lives. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com Find me on Instagram at QuotationsPod or join the conversation on Facebook at QuotationsPod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.